Well, good morning, everyone. Wondering how many of you got up early yesterday morning and did what every good Canadian would have done and played frisbee golf. Oh, okay. I I know who was there. How many of you got up yesterday early, early? I see Cindy's hand and watched the coronation of King Charles. Of course, John, you would have been disowned by your homeland if you didn't. Ken did. Well, I didn't, but I typically start every morning looking at the news. Uh, even before, sorry, Brian, I, where Brian's coming in here, before I go down and, and open up my Bible, usually I, I get up, I look at my phone, and as I'm getting a coffee, I flip through the news on the different apps I've got just to see what's going on uh, in the world. And uh, one thing that is very evident now and probably all the time that I've made a daily um, activity of looking at the news is we are in the midst of an integrity crisis. And whether it be political news, uh, whether it be economic business news, whether it be celebrity Hollywood news, uh, there's an integrity crisis. What people say has often nothing to do with what they do. What people promise often is not seen in what they accomplish. And so people's words and people's actions seem to be totally different from each other. Uh, I, I googled the word integrity this week to see the different definitions I would come up with. And the one definition that I read really struck me. It said to always behave according to the moral principles you believe and you profess. And if that's integrity, that's a rare thing in our world today. That kind of integrity is not the guardrails that most people live their life in between. Uh, More commonplace is probably distortion, falsehood, fantasy. I was reading the story and it caught my attention. My daughter, Lauren, uh, is uh, finished at Trent and she's finished her law degree in the UK and now she's just doing some final courses so that she can actually practice law in Canada. And I came across this story of a young lawyer, first practice, just opening up his brand new office. And the very first day, the very first hour, he's standing in his banking brand new um, office and he sees a potential client walking up to his door and it hits him. I can't let this person, this potential customer, think that I'm new at this. And so he quickly puts a piece of paper on his desk, opens up a blank file folder and picks up the phone and starts having an imaginary conversation. And as this person walks in the door, he goes, yes, it's about the amalgamation of that plant. Yeah, I don't think $3 million is going to cut it. You know, I'm going to have to come down to that plant myself. And you know what? We better call Hank in from the Seattle office. I'll meet him there and I'll, I'll look after things. Okay, great. All right. Goodbye. We'll talk to you soon. And he hangs up the phone in the cradle and he looks up at this person who's walked into his office and said, good morning. How can I help you? And the person looks at the lawyer and says, well, actually, you can't help me. I'm from the phone company, and I've come to hook up your phone. (laughs) And And so we laugh at these kind of stories of 
lack of integrity. But most often, and, and, and some of us know this personally, situations that involve a lack or a breakdown of integrity can be really painful and can have great and costly implications. And so the question I asked this morning is where is the man and woman of integrity in our world today? A person who's willing to stand alone. A person who's willing to have their words backed up by their actions. A person who's willing to pay the price. Even suffer loss for the sake of their beliefs. More specifically, the question I want to ask this morning is where is the man and woman of integrity in the church today? Because aren't we as followers of Jesus to be different? Can I ask you, does the life you live reflect the faith in Jesus that you profess? Is what you claim about your life matched by what you do in your life? I've said this before. I'll say it again. There's a thing I used to say quite often to the kids. Not as often anymore. I only got one that walks out the door to a school bus now. But I still say it from time to time to Jack as he makes his way out the door to the school bus. I'll say, hey, Jack, or Graham, or Lauren, or Natalie, depending on when it was. Hey, Jack, yeah? Remember who you are, what you are, and why you are. And at its lowest level, what I'm saying to Jack or to one of my kids was remember that you're a Mackie. And what you do and how you act and how you behave reflects on our family. But to a higher level of a greater importance, what I'm saying to my kids is remember who you are, what you are, why you are. You're a child of the king. And what you do and how you act and how you behave reflects on the one you call your Savior and Lord. And that you are to be salt. You are to be a light. You are to be a witness. You are to bring glory to your Savior through the way that you act. Remember who you are, what you are, and why you are. And I know that there must have been a couple of mornings anyways that that thing that I said over and over and over again was a stinging rebuke to a guilty conscience. And if that's true, imagine what it must have been like to be in the audience in Luke chapter 6 when Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? And I think Jesus is asking some of us that very question this morning. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you profess to anyone who will hear you that I am your Lord, but you don't do what I say? 
How long will you acknowledge my glory, receive my forgiveness, delight in the benefits of my love, but refuse to fully bend your knee in submission to me and live out your salvation in integrity? Where is the man and woman of integrity in the church today? Well, this morning I want to introduce you to one. He lived a long time ago. In fact, he lived in the very first century. He lived in the midst of an integrity crisis. He lived surrounded by people who professed to be followers of Jesus Christ, but the way they lived their life was no evidence of that profession, and it broke this man's heart. And so the Lord moved him to write a letter. A letter that most scholars believe is the earliest New Testament book that we have. A letter that's not real deep in theory. It's a real practical letter. And in this letter, James exhorts and and encourages and teaches those who would hear his message that genuine faith is a faith that works. Genuine faith is one that's backed up by the way that we live. It's, it's, It's evidenced in the things that we do. This morning, I got the privilege of introducing our series that we're going to be moving into. Uh, and, and if you like longer series, you're going to love this one. I think Al was telling me that it could be Christmas by the time we finish James. And it's not even a long book. But there's so much practical advice and instruction and commands uh, that we can learn from. And so we're going to slowly, and I mean slowly, because today I'm covering almost all of verse 1 of chapter 1. We're going to move our way slowly through this. And so I encourage you to get to know James, to get that Bible open and read James over and over again and do some research and make sure what we're saying from the platform uh, is all good. And I think we're going to enjoy our time together. So turn in your Bible, get used to it, to James right after Hebrews. And and let's read one verse. James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Most of my message today is going to be on one word. James. Because I think there's so much for us to learn. There's so much encouragement and challenge from understanding the life story of James. And having said that, the obvious question is, well, what James? Because there's four or five, depending if one guy is actually two different people or two references are referring to one James. There's four or five Jameses that we come across in the New Testament. And and if you really want to uh, 
investigate this. I'll, I'll, I'll let you do that for yourself. I'm going to just cut three right out of the equation. So there's three of the mentions of James that definitely don't fit as the one who would have written this letter. So that leaves us with two James that could possibly be the author of this letter. The first one is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of the apostle John, one of the inner circle of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, had a significant role in the early church. He possibly could have been the writer of this letter. However, he's the first disciple that was martyred. He was martyred, executed in AD 42, which is before James was actually written. So that leaves us with one James. James, the brother, or more accurately, the half-brother of Jesus. He is the one that most scholars in the traditional view is, and the one that we will be holding to, is the author of the letter that begins with his name, James. But if you know your Gospels, you might have a question isn't James, the brother of Jesus, one of the siblings who didn't believe Jesus and actually thought Jesus was a bit crazy? Yeah, you're right. This is the same James. He didn't believe his brother. He thought his brother was crazy. So what happened in the life of James that would lead him to write such a passionate letter? And that's what I want to take a look at for the next few minutes. One thing I want us to see and to understand right from the outset of this series is that James insists that real, genuine faith in Jesus must result in a changed life. Because James's faith in Jesus transformed his life. And that's why we've got a letter a passionate, practical letter like the one uh, before us today. So James, the brother of Jesus, uh, is the one who has written this letter. And as I said, I, I just want to take a look at his life journey. Because how does, if you looked at the title for today's message, how does James the cynic, the doubter, become James the martyr? So let's look... Look at James's life from the beginning. How many of you watched The Chosen? Okay, there's a lot of you that need to watch The Chosen because it is fantastic. And one of the things I love about The Chosen is how they take passages of Scripture, scenes from Scripture that I have read over and over, I have preached on, I have had Sunday school lessons on, and they actually put it to life. And I am sure they're not 100% accurate on how all the interactions went in some of these scenes, but it is so fun to imagine that that is possibly how it took place. And one of the scenes that, I, I, that most vividly stands out to me is when uh, Peter and the disciples put the net back into the water and it fills with fish. And it's comical. And Jesus and Peter share a little chuckle back and forth. And it was just so cool to imagine what it must have been like to actually have been in those situations. And so as I'm thinking about James, the brother of Jesus, I want us to put our imagination, is that what you call it? Imagination cap on. And imagine what it must have been like for James 
to be a brother to Jesus. Because I need to say, well, James was a brother of Jesus. And, and that just goes in one ear and out the other. We probably don't really think about it a lot. But imagine Jesus is your brother. And imagine the things that brothers do together. So James and Jesus would have played together. They would have worked together in Joseph's woodshop. They would have eaten together. They would have slept together. They would have went on walks together. They would have went fishing together. They probably wrestled together, played hide and seek together. Jesus was James' brother, but he wasn't just his brother. Jesus was James' older brother. Jesus was the oldest, and then most believe James was the second oldest. Any of you have older brothers? Okay, so you know what it's like to have an older brother. I have two older brothers. And uh, I can always remember the fear that would creep in when my mom and dad would go out and say, Brent, your older brother is in charge. Because my older brother would have taken that very seriously. And all of a sudden, my older brother became a prison guard. That's what having an older brother can be like. My two older brothers and myself, when we grew up in our home in Toronto, we used to go into what we called the back room, which was just a very small room that was cement floors and and not finished walls, and we would play ball hockey in the basement. And I can remember as the youngest and the smallest then what it was like playing with my two older brothers, especially my oldest brother, John, who wasn't the greatest ball hockey player, but he was the biggest And I would run up often the stairs crying. And my parents would say, Brent, what's wrong? I say, John is bumming again. Because he wouldn't go forward with the, he would go backwards with his bum leading and knock me all over the place. It was horrible playing ball hockey with my older brother. And the best thing that ever happened was the day that I got bigger and stronger than both my older brothers. And I got to push them around. But for the longest time, He was my older brother, and that wasn't a really great thing a lot of times. Imagine what it was like for James to have Jesus as his older brother. We don't know a whole lot of details about what that must have been like, but Jesus was James' brother. He was his older brother, and then add this to the equation. He was James' older perfect brother. He didn't sin. When, when supper was called, Jesus went a-running. He obeyed everything his parents said. He washed his hands. He probably cleaned the bathtub after he had it. He did everything perfect. And could you imagine what it was like to have Jesus, the older perfect brother? I could imagine that James and his siblings were quite happy when Jesus decided to move out. I'm sure the standards got lowered a little bit. But then Jesus came back. And he doesn't just come back. He comes back and he claims that he's the son of God. That that he has been sent from heaven to save people from their sins and to restore people into a right relationship with the Father. And I don't have to imagine what James and his siblings thought about the claims of Jesus because the Gospels record it for us. James didn't believe the claims of his brother. His family 
planned an intervention to, to go and get Jesus because he was really starting to act crazy. And so through the duration of James's life in the Gospels, he doesn't believe in the words or the claims of Jesus. He doesn't see Jesus as the Son of God. He doesn't see Jesus as the promised Messiah. But something happens. When we move into Acts, in Acts chapter 1 specifically, Jesus is taken up into heaven. And it says that the disciples and some others were meeting regularly in an upper room for prayer. And along with the disciples was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So James was now identifying himself with the followers of Jesus. What happened? How did James, the doubter, the the cynic, become James, a follower of Jesus, a believer? Well, I think the clue to what happened to James was found in our scripture reading this morning. And those of you who knew that we were talking about James might have been wondering why we were reading from 1 Corinthians 15 where it's Paul talking. He really ends it talking about himself. But, it, but in that reading, we find out that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to a list of people, to Peter, to the disciples, to a group of over 500 people. At the end, he, he, he appears to Paul. But tucked in there is a very special appearance of Jesus. Jesus appears to his brother James. Now, I can only imagine what that appearance must have been like because we aren't given any further details. I imagine that there would have been some kind of embrace, spiritual embrace. There would have been words of love and encouragement and and explanation. But I can just picture the risen Jesus face to face with his doubting brother. And many believe it was at that moment that James came to faith. So what happened to James? I think this is such a message of hope. Because if I, if I back up a moment, right, we, 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 we begin seeing James as a doubter and as a skeptic. And yet he, he, he grew up with the Son of God. He heard the claims. And yet he refused to believe. He couldn't believe. And there might be someone here this morning, or you know someone, you've been praying with someone for so long that they would come to faith. They've heard it all. You've heard it all. You've heard it over and over again. Well, there's hope because James gives us hope. And what happened to James? He had an encounter with the risen Savior. James has an encounter with his risen brother who is his risen Savior and he realizes the scales fall off. The hard heart is softened and he realizes that Jesus is who he said he was. 
that Jesus did do what he claimed he would do, and that the fact that he had risen from the dead is proof, is, is verification of the things that Jesus said he would do. And so James bends the knee and submits himself It puts his faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, his brother, becomes Jesus, his savior. And this is no half-hearted commitment. Imagine if you were James, how you would begin this letter. Because I know if it was me, there would be some serious name dropping. Like if you know me and we get into a conversation about the automobile industry, I probably will or would have told you about my brother Scott, who while he worked for GM was up at the very top of GM International. If we were talking about churches and pastors, I would probably talk to you about my brother John, who's a pastor in London. I've told many people who love hockey that somehow, and I'm not even sure how it works, but Rick Lee, who used to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs and was a coach for the Vancouver Canucks, he is somehow related to my mom through my grandma's side somehow, but he is a cousin to me if it's the right conversation. For those of you who have been around Auburn long enough, I'm sure you have name-dropped the fact that Mike Fisher, the hockey player, used to Go to Sunday school and grow up here at Auburn. And he married Carrie Underwood. And I even preached a sermon and Carrie Underwood and Mike Fisher were in the crowd. And they gave me words of encouragement after. I love to name drop. Could you imagine how James could name drop? Chuck Swindoll, he, he jokes about this in, in his commentary on this. And he, he, he rewrites James chapter 1 verse 1. James of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David of the royal line of the kings of Judah. Greetings. Or, or, or James, the brother of Jesus, the incarnate son of God. Greetings. James, the pastor of the first world Christian church. Greetings. James, the associate of James, Peter, and John, and a close colleague of the rest of the apostles. Greetings. That's not how James starts his book. In fact, As we get further into the book, we're going to see that this kind of name dropping, which is really fueled by pride, he speaks against it. So I'll probably live to regret this illustration that I've used. Uh, But look how James starts it. James, how does he identify himself? A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant. And we read that and go, that's nice. He's a servant. That's okay. So he didn't name drop, and so he serves the Lord. We serve too. That's just a nice English translation of a Greek word that literally means slave. So James, the skeptic, the doubter, the brother of Jesus, who's now a a fully committed believer, refers to himself as a slave. And, And in Roman culture, this kind of slave, a doulos, literally was someone who was fully owned by someone else for a lifetime. And in the Roman culture, which was a class culture, this was not a prized uh, um, or a privileged position. 
But James didn't see it as a curse. He didn't see it as a penalty. He saw it as the greatest honor to be able to refer to himself as a servant, a bondservant, a slave of God and of his Lord, Jesus Christ. And serve, James did. As we move into Acts, we see that James becomes a very prominent leader in the early church. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter's released from jail, the first person he seeks out is James. In Acts 15, we have the first great council of the church. And presiding over that council is James. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul comes to Jerusalem and he seeks out two people, Peter and James. Ancient historians tell us that James continued to live in Jerusalem and he continued to teach and he, he continued to tell pretty well anyone that would listen, but specifically Jews and visitors to Jerusalem about Jesus the Messiah. So known was James for the life that he lived that backed up the faith that he professed that, that he garnered some nicknames. He was known as James the Just because of his righteous lifestyle, because he was honest, because of his integrity, because of his dealings that were always fair. Another nickname he got was Old Camel Knees. This is true. And it wasn't because he had ugly knees and people were making fun of him. They called him Old Camel Knees because evidently he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that his knees looked worn out like a camel's knee. And so he got the nickname Old Camel Knees. But not everyone was warm and fuzzy about James. He had attracted so many Jews to the message of Jesus that the zealous and jealous religious elite wanted nothing to do with him but to get rid of him. In AD 62, James is martyred. For his faith. Church historian Eusebius writes, and I just want to read what he wrote. The Jewish leaders, being frustrated by their attempts to entrap Paul, turned against James, the brother of the Lord. Leading him into their midst, they demanded of him that he should renounce his faith in Christ in the presence of all the people. But contrary to the opinion of all, with a clear voice and with greater boldness than they had anticipated, he spoke out before the whole multitude and confessed that our Savior and Lord Jesus is the Son of God. But they were unable to bear longer the testimony of the man who on account of the excellence of ascetic virtue and piety which he exhibited in his life was esteemed by all as the most just of men and consequently they slew him. Historian Josephus, uh, Josephus uh, reports that James was stoned to death. Uh, Eusebius, uh, he recounts that James was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death uh, with the club. But whatever the details of his actual death, James meets a horrific end. He was willing to live out his faith for Jesus and he was willing to die for his faith and Jesus. But before he was martyred, the Lord moved him to write the letter that we're going to be considering. And who more qualified to write this letter than James? A letter where one thing he wants us to understand more than any 
to simply profess that you believe in Jesus doesn't mean anything unless it's backed up with evidence of that belief. In James chapter 2, and I'm not sure which one of us is covering this passage, but it'll be a fun one. James says, you say you believe? Great. Even the demons believe and they shudder. This is serious, serious stuff that James is going to be talking about. As I said, he's qualified to talk about it. He's got the authority to talk about it, not because he's the brother of Jesus. I think James just kind of wipes that off the slate when when he introduces himself. That's not the authority and the qualifications that he's bringing to the writing of this letter. He's writing as one who's experienced what it's like to be lost, to be broken, to be guilty for their sin, but he's experienced the grace and forgiveness. He's been saved through the work of Jesus. He's qualified to write this because he's not going to throw out, like some people do, a bunch of standards that, that are impossible to live by and then live totally differently himself. He lived by the standards that he expected others to live by. And he doesn't write this for his benefit. Not a prideful thing that he did. He writes it for the benefit of his readers and for us. So that we can mature, that we can grow spiritually. And ultimately he writes it so that his Savior would receive the glory and honor by Christians who profess to be followers of Jesus, living a life that makes that evident to be true. I'm going to conclude just by looking at the second line of verse 1. Because I think it's a really important question because we're going to commit a lot of time to going through this series that we ask this question. Why is the letter of James relevant to us? It's an early, probably the earliest New Testament writing written by a Jewish believer to primarily a Jewish believing audience. How can it possibly be relevant to us? I want to suggest that if you understand the context in which James writes this and the purpose for which James writes this, writes us, you'll see that we're not excluded. And that is a very relevant message. First of all, James writes to an audience who are hurting, who are suffering, who are experiencing things in life that just don't seem fair. They're experiencing things in life that they didn't bring on themselves. They're being persecuted and rejected and ridiculed because of their faith in Jesus. James writes to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And by the time of James, that's really just a figure of speech because so much has happened to the 12 tribes of Israel by this time. It's a figure of speech just referring to Jews. And what James tells us is that the Jews have been scattered. And by the time of the writing of James, especially in Rome, uh, there's been persecution of the Jews. And, and, and they're wanting the Jews to leave Rome and to scatter. And they 
were successful in doing this by boycotting their businesses and by neglecting the children and not letting the children go to normal Roman schools. And, and so the Jewish people scatter. They scatter across the Roman Empire. And they, they create little communities, Jewish communities, throughout the Roman Empire. But uh, James is primarily writing to Jewish believers. And so if you were a Jewish believer at this time, there was a double whammy for you. Not only were you scattered, dispersed, because you were Jewish. But if you were a Jewish believer and you professed that belief, and you went to one of these Jewish communities scattered across the empire, you you face the same kind of ridicule and rejection and suffering and neglect that the Jews themselves as a people were experiencing in Rome. And so great is this suffering not just the suffering that life brings, but, but the suffering that they received because of their professed faith in Jesus. A number of them turned their back on their faith. They doubted God, they questioned God, they questioned the commitment that they had made. And so they turned their back on their faith. And if they didn't turn their back on their faith, they were very tempted to do something that might sound a bit familiar. They kept their profession of faith. They kept their belief. But they lived their life no different than anybody else. I know that there's people here in our congregation, watching online, who are experiencing suffering and hurt and loss. I was talking to John yesterday over breakfast and, and we talked about the fact that we live in a world that sin has tainted, it's stained. The stain of sin is all over this world and things just don't work like they're supposed to. And as a result, we experience the consequences of living in a world that's stained and corrupted by sin. Relationships aren't what they're supposed to be. People hurt us. We hurt people. Bad things happen to good people. Horrific crimes take place. And I know there are people in this room and you have experienced rejection or ridicule because of your faith in Jesus And you've been tempted to turn your back on God, to question your faith, or at a minimum, you've chosen to live as an undercover Christian. And if any of that resonates with you, if you can relate to any of that, the letter of James is relevant for you. James also writes to confront a corruption of of the faith that has moved into the church. Some think it perhaps was a distortion of Paul's teaching that it's, it's by faith and faith alone that you're saved. And so what some people did was they distorted that to say, well, as long as you have faith, as long as you say, I believe in Jesus, you can live however you want. It's a license to, to, to sin because I believe in Jesus. I don't have to live that way. So it could have been a distortion of Paul's teaching that was happening around that time. Or it was just simply the people profess that they believe in Jesus, but their behavior didn't match it. 
And they allowed the behaviors and the values of the world to corrupt and to compromise their Christian walk. I don't know how you feel about it, but 2,000 plus years later, I don't think things have changed. Because there are way too many people who profess to be followers of Jesus who don't live like it. And if I'm stepping on your toes like I'm stepping on my toes, then you know what? The, the message of the letter that James writes is relevant for you because it's relevant for me. And then finally, I believe that James writes this because he wants us to understand that God intends that real faith that works, real faith that is reflected in the way that we live our life is to be a testimony of the difference that Jesus can make in our life. And the flip side of that is that the greatest harm that can be done to the kingdom of God and, 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 and to the concerns of the kingdom and for, to the sake of Jesus and his proclamation of the gospel, the greatest harm is when Christians live with a lack of integrity and when Christians live like hypocrites, when, when we live like undercover Christians where people can't see a difference in our life. I've told you the story about the girl that I met at a Bible study in my 20s who I'd gone to high school with and she was quite flabbergasted that I would be at a Bible study. And I go, what do you mean that I would be at a Bible study? Well, I knew you at high school. You're the last person I would have ever imagined to have been at a Bible study. How much harm have I done to the kingdom because of the hypocrisy of the way I live my life? that my profession of faith, which I chose in certain spots, wasn't backed up by the life that I was living every day. And so if you can relate to my experience, the message of James is for you. Daniel, bring the praise team up. I encourage you, get your Bible out. Read the letter to James. Next week is only verses 2, 3, and 4. So three verses. Memorize them. And uh, Al will uh, teach them to us next week.